Sometimes there's things in life that get so familiar, you've seen them a million times, and you never stop and ask yourself, like, what they're actually for or why they're there. Can you think of anything like that? Like, in the front of every pair of jeans, pretty much universally, universally, there's that tiny little pocket that nothing fits in, right? Who, what was that for originally? It was a pocket watch for workers because the wrist watch hadn't been in, invented yet. The little rivets that are now decorative were actually fastened the pants together in places where they would normally maybe come apart, but... There's lots of things, really, if you look around, think, what is this even, what's this for? What's this doing here? And today's passage that we're going to study in the book of Matthew is a little bit like that tiny front pocket. Because it can make us ask, what's it, what's it doing here? We're going to read and study through the story of the execution of John the Baptist at the hands of, of Herod. This isn't, and we're in the middle of the story about Jesus and his disciples. And if we're following the arc of the story of the book of Matthew, Jesus just told us a bunch of kingdom parables. The kingdom of heaven is like, he said it's a field. And some people, you know, the seed of the word can't get in, get in their hearts. And there's reasons why it doesn't grow We don't grow from our lives the harvest God wants. The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure. It's like a pearl. Not everybody's getting in. Some fish will be keepers. Some will be thrown into judgment. He's told us the kingdom parables. Then starting next week, Jesus is going to start to show what he can do with people who are a part of his kingdom. Every miracle of Jesus is miraculous, right, by definition. But next week, he's going to feed a stadium-sized crowd full of people using five loaves and two fish. Remember that story? Then he's going to walk on water in the next story. And in between those kingdom parables and those miracles stuck in the middle... Last week, Jesus was, are two stories of rejection. Last week, Jesus was rejected in his hometown of Nazareth. And today, his cousin, John the Baptist, will be executed. And it doesn't happen chronologically. Matthew tells us as much. But he put it here on purpose. So here's what we're going to do today. We're going to do what we normally do with a passage where I'm going to just sort of teach through the execution of John the Baptist and and help us learn what I think the Lord would have us learn from the story. But then we're going to ask that question about the passage. Why is it here? Why did Matthew take this story about John the Baptist that's probably, it's not chronological at all. And why did he stick it here? What is the purpose of of that. So that's where we're going today. Let's read our passage. If you have your Bible with you, turn to Matthew chapter 14. And Matthew chapter 14 verses 1 and 12, most of it's a flashback. John's execution happened toward the beginning of Jesus's ministry. So what we're going to do is we're going to read the flashback first. 
So we're going to start in verse 3 and read through verse 12 and then come back and read verses 1 and 2. This is the flashback that Matthew wants to share with us today. Matthew 14, beginning in verse 3. For when Herod had John arrested, he bound John and put him in prison because of Herodias, the wife of his brother, Philip, Herod's brother, Philip. Because John had been saying to Herod, it's not lawful for you to have her. Although Herod wanted to put him to death, he feared the crowd because the crowd regarded John as a prophet. But when Herod's birthday came, the daughter of Herodias danced before them and pleased Herod so much that he promised with an oath to give her whatever she asked. Having been prompted by her mother, she said, Give me here on a platter the head of John the Baptist. Verse 9. Although Herod was grieved, the king commanded it to be given because of his oaths and because of his dinner guests. He sent and had John beheaded in the prison, and his head was brought on a platter and given to the girl, and she brought it to her mother. John's disciples came and took away his body and buried it, and they went and reported it to Jesus. Now we flash back forward, verses 1 and 2, to the contemporary time where we read this. At that time, during Jesus' ministry, Herod the Tetrarch heard news about Jesus. And Herod said to his servants, He is John the Baptist, risen from the dead. And that is why there are miraculous powers at work in Jesus. There's our passage for the day. What are we supposed to learn from that? First, first, I think I have to explain a little bit about the family tree. Sam, is there a black remote back there someplace that does that? All right. No, not that one. There's a laser pointer. Talk amongst yourselves. I'll be right back. That's it right there. There are at least, there are four different guys in the New Testament, in the first five books of the New Testament, all named Herod. And they get really confusing. So just a word about who this guy is and the different Herods. The first one we met, we met in Matthew chapter 2. He's usually called by the name Herod the Great. Uh, Herod the Great was allowed to, be, to call himself a king by the Romans. He ruled most of Palestine. He was, uh, I don't want to say he was a good ruler because he wasn't a morally good person at all, but he was an effective ruler. He was good at his job as far as the Romans were concerned. He was a fantastic builder. The, the temple that Jesus walked in is called Herod's Temple because Herod the Great commissioned its building and oversaw the construction. Herod is the guy in Matthew chapter 2 that learned that the Old Testament predicted a Jewish king called the Messiah or the Christ. And he's the one that had to, tried to have all of the babies, the male babies of that area, killed to try and keep the, the Messiah from coming of age. That was not at all out of character with Herod the Great. He would kill anybody he thought was a rival to his uh, authority or his line of secession. He killed his own sons. He killed his own wives. He killed his uh, brothers. And this guy, Herod the Great, 
He was married either nine or ten times, you know, concurrently. He married either nine or ten women, depending upon which sources that you, that you read. And he didn't have much imagination when it came to naming his kids, because most of his sons he named Herod. He was like George Foreman, right? He just named all of his kids George. Um, and Herod the Great, one of his sons shows up today. Herod Antipas is the guy of our, of our story. He's called Herod the Tetrarch. Tetrarch is a term that means ruler of a fourth. After Herod the Great died, the Romans decided we don't, want to, we don't trust anybody to, to rule that much of the Holy Land. So they divided it into fourths. Pontius Pilate, if you recognize that name, ruled a fourth, was a governor of a fourth. So was the Herod in our story today. And the Herod in our story today, uh, well... If you know the, the Herods in the book of Acts, that's these two guys down here, a grandson and great-grandson of Herod the Great. Agrippa's the guy that had a bad case of the worms and died, if you know that story. And then Paul stood in front of the guy usually just called Agrippa on trial toward the end of the book of Acts, different Herods. Our guy today, Herod Antipas, had quite a story that you need to know to make sense of today's passage. He was married before... But he fell in love with another woman who happened to be married to his brother, Philip. Herod Philip. Philip doesn't show up much except for little mentions like this. Um, And Philip was married to a woman named Herodias. Now, does Herodias, does that name look a lot like a female version of Herod? Or is it just me? There's a reason. Because Herodias was the daughter of another of their brothers, a guy named Herod Aristobulus. Okay? So Philip married his own niece named Herodias. You can almost hear dueling banjos playing in the background of this story. Um, uh, I just made somebody have a really uncomfortable conversation with their kids after this, but... Sorry. All right, so Philip is married to his niece. Philip's brother, Herod Antipas, falls in love with his niece and sister-in-law, seduces her, convinces her to leave Philip and marry him because she's always wanted to be a queen. And so they do this, and they start this incestuous niece-uncle, sister-in-law, brother-in-law marriage. And where that gets into today's story is he governed over the area where John the Baptist's ministry was. And John the Baptist, being a prophet, as I mentioned earlier, an Old Testament prophet, one thing God called Old Testament prophets to do was to preach the repentance of sin and especially call out the sin, the immorality in powerful people. When we met John the Baptist in in chapter 3 of the book of Matthew, he called out the religious leaders on their sin. And we learn today, and history tells us this is true also, that one thing John did is he he called out Herod Antipas on this marriage. Matthew says, he says, you shouldn't have her. This is an illicit, illegal, immoral marriage. 
And because John's, he was repetitively doing this, by the way. And because John's ministry was so popular, thousands of people flocked out to hear John preach and be baptized by him in the Jordan River. And what they kept hearing him preach was about how wrong the marriage of Antipas and Herodias was. And Herodias really hated John, and so did Herod. Herod wanted to silence John the Baptist, so he decided to arrest him. In verse 5, I think it's 5, we learn he really wanted to silence him permanently. But he was afraid that because John was so powerful that the people would turn against him and he'd have problems politically. So Herod's a guy, public opinion. He was afraid of public opinion, so he had John arrested. But he was afraid of of public opinion, so he didn't execute John. And that's sort of where where we pick up the story today. One year on Herod's birthday, Herod Antipas. He has a party for himself. In attendance would have been all the the political bigwigs, the big shots of the region. As per usual, there was live entertainment at this birthday party. And what was unusual... Uh, dancing would not have been an unusual thing to have as live entertainment. What was unusual is something of a princess, uh, his wife's daughter. This is not his biological daughter. It's his stepdaughter slash great niece. Okay? Um, we learn elsewhere her name's Salome. She comes and she dances as the entertainment for this party. You can read some pretty kind of lewd guesses as to what kind of dance this was, but there was no, there's no indication of any of that in the Gospels or really any other historical sources. Probably what's unusual about this dance is that usually a commoner would come in and provide the entertainment. And this is like the princess doing it, and apparently she's good at it. And so she gets a really good response from the crowd. And one thing big shots did back in that day, they still do, by the way, things like this, but one thing big shots did back in the day to try to make themselves seem like the biggest big shot in a room full of big shots is offer lavish gifts in a way that make it seem like it's no big deal because I have so much money that, you know, what is this to me? The, 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 the modern equivalent would be the guy who goes in the club and, and throws $100 bills around, right? Because I got so much money, this is nothing. This is what Herod is doing. Everybody is pleased with his dancing, and he says to his stepdaughter slash great niece, you, anything that you wish, I will give you. Because I'm so wealthy, whatever you could dream up would really be nothing to me. And I assume that Herod thinks, this is my stepdaughter, if she asks for something that I don't want to give, I'll get out of it tomorrow. But he asks this publicly, and this young girl, either her mom already ha- her mom Herodias, either already has her prepared or she has time to go and consult with her mom. And unfortunately for Herod Antipas, she does not ask for a pony. Her mom, who wants John the Baptist dead, 
asks not just for John the Baptist's execution. Uh, she's too crafty for that. She's, she may have been wicked, but she wasn't dumb. Herodias asks that the proof of the execution be brought right during the party. She asks, literally, for the severed head of John the Baptist during a banquet. Do you want fries with that? It was either as a new iPhone or a severed head. It was, I just, she couldn't, I'm going to have to go with the severed head. And that's, that's what happens. That's how John the Baptist came to die. Because Herodias knows how her husband works. He makes his decisions based on the public opinion that's around him. You'll notice that, that Matthew says that he, he uh, even though this grieved the king, even though this grieved the king because of his oath and because of what? Because of his dinner guests. He has John the Baptist executed because he doesn't want to look like a sissy in front of his friends. And that's how John the Baptist came to die. Beheaded at the request of a ruler who wanted to execute John because of public opinion, but then again he didn't want to execute John because of public opinion, and then he finally did execute John because of the people in the room and their opinion. And within this little story, there is this incredibly stark contrast between John the Baptist and Herod Antipas. How did each of those two men make the decisions they made in life? Herod Antipas made his decisions based on what everyone else might think about him. He allowed his life to be aimed at a million different moving targets. What will those people think? Well, what will those people think? Well, what will these people in the room think? Whereas John the Baptist aimed his life at what would glorify his God, the target that never moves. Both men lived for approval. Just the approval of different people. And now I want you to see where living a life like Herod lived. Making your decisions, letting other people's opinions of you set what decisions you make. I want you to see from verses 1 and 2 of Matthew chapter 14 where that leaves a person. (laughs) And we see it in... Herod's response to learning about Jesus. All that I just explained happened a year before this. Okay, John the Baptist is executed. And then Herod starts to learn that there's a, there's a new Jew in town. From the same family as John the Baptist, whether he knows that or not. Jesus is his name and he's, he's got miraculous power and authoritative preaching and he's developing a following. And verse 1, at that time, Herod the Tetrarch heard these reports about Jesus. Verse 2, and he said to his servants, 
Jesus is John the Baptist. He's been raised from the dead. And that's why there's miraculous powers working in Jesus because he's a reincarnation of John the Baptist. Do you hear what is what he's saying there? I'm about to get it for what I did to John the Baptist. There's a couple things we can learn from Herod's response here. The first one is this. It's really difficult to explain Jesus if you don't believe that Jesus was who he said he was. Jesus uh, Jesus claimed, come back the next few weeks, we're going to see Jesus very clearly call himself God. Allow himself to be worshipped as God. He's going to show himself to be the, Israel's good shepherd. He's going to call himself, he called himself God. He called himself the bread of life. He called himself the narrow gate. He said, there's no way to God except through me. He's Savior. He's Messiah. He's God in, in the flesh. That's what Jesus said about himself. Now, if you don't want to believe that about Jesus, the question is, what do you do with Jesus? How do you explain Jesus? Here's what a lot of people like to try to do. We try to say, Jesus is a good example. Jesus was a good teacher. We should follow Jesus' teaching But I don't go in for all that stuff about God in the flesh, virgin birth, Savior of the world, only way to heaven. That's a bridge too far. But we can't do that honestly. Here's why. I'll prove this to you. Let's say your child has started school in the last, what, few weeks here? And your little one comes home from school and you've entrusted his or her little life to the teaching and example of a classroom teacher. And your little one comes home and you say, how was school today? Oh, it was great. How's your teacher? Oh, I love her. Well, why do you love her so much? Well, she tells me she's God. And she tells me I should worship her. And she tells me she's the only way to get to heaven. Would you say, well, as long as she teaches good things, you hang right in there? No. You'd say, your teacher is crackers. We got to do something different. You'd say, I mean, there's, but that's Jesus. That's what he said about himself. And And if that's not, how do you follow someone who claims to be God if you don't believe he's God? Why would you? If Jesus wasn't all that he said he was, he's David Koresh without the firearms. So you may not come to this conclusion that he's another Jewish prophet reincarnated, but that makes as much sense as anything else. So that's the first thing we learn from, from Herod's response. But the main one, the second thing we learn from Herod's reaction to Jesus is that any time someone allows their life and their decisions to be made based on someone else's opinion, 
A guilty conscience always is the result. Is Herod really haunted by the ghost of John the Baptist? No, because Jesus was not the ghost of John the Baptist. What is haunting Herod? What's haunting Herod is he knew he shouldn't have had John the Baptist executed, and he did it anyway because he didn't want to look like a sissy in front of his friends. That's what's haunting Herod. And I am telling you, and I've lived it, I'm not telling you that it is likely. If you make your decisions based on what other people will think about you, I am not telling you that you are likely to regret those decisions and be haunted by your conscience later. I am guaranteeing it. And here's how I can be so sure. The only way that won't be true is if you always hang around with people who 100% of the time agree with you and who 100% of the time have your best interests at heart. Always. And that's never true. Because you hang around people like us. (laughs) And if you let people who don't agree with you all the time set the course of your decisions, there will come a time where you'll make a decision you don't agree with even while you're making it. Now, now that I've used most of my time, we have to ask the question I told you we were going to ask at the beginning. Why, what is this story doing here? You know, let me remind you where it is. Matthew told us the parables of the kingdom. The kingdom of heaven's like a treasure hidden in the field. We should be willing to give up all that we have to have that treasure, which is eternal life, access to the kingdom. It's the pearl of great price. Not everybody's getting in. Right? Some fish will be thrown away. Some fish are keepers. And Jesus just asked, do you understand these things? Do you understand that the treasure of eternal life comes only through faith in Jesus? Are you a weed or are you a wheat? Those are the parables. And if we're, if we're tracking with Matthew and we say, yes, I'm in. I, I, I buy the treasure. And then starting next week, he's going to start to show us what God can do through regular people who understand that the treasure is the treasure and who treasure the treasure. But Matthew wants to preach at us for a little bit first. He says, now that you have the treasure, before I tell you about the awesome things God can do through you who believe in Jesus, I don't want you to get the wrong idea. And he tells us two stories about rejection first. He says, I I don't want you to be ignorant of the costs that come with following Jesus as his disciple." I don't want you to follow Jesus thinking, I'm going to try Jesus out. I'm going to try some Jesus and see if I can get what I want in my life. Because it doesn't work that way. Check out these story arcs. See if they sound familiar. John the Baptist's life. He came out of nowhere. He had this incredible ministry. He was arrested and he was executed. Upon his arrest, 
Jesus of Nazareth came out of nowhere, started this amazing public ministry, and at the risk of giving away the ending of the book of Matthew, he's going to be arrested. He's going to be executed. Then his Galilean disciples, who are just the regularest guys ever, they start an incredible public ministry. Guess what happens to them? Almost they're arrested. Almost all of them are executed. They're exiled. They're rejected. Do you see a similar story arc in there? Well, guess who the baton has been handed to now? Matthew is saying, I want, he's already told us, I want you to have the treasure, the pearl of great price, eternal life. I want you to possess that and treasure that, but don't be ignorant. Don't, don't be ignorant of what you're signing up for. We do not follow Jesus faithfully so he'll make everything go right for us in the world. It didn't work that way for John the Baptist. It didn't work that way for Jesus. It didn't work that way for the disciples. Why would we think it would work that way for us? And Matthew wrote this like late in his life, I believe after his friends started getting killed. And I think he knew he might be next. He's preaching at us here. Don't fall into the trap of believing the reason I live faithfully is so I can have the desires of my heart. Like I can coerce God into making my life what I want it to be. Church, I want to make you aware of this truth. Life can feel like we will get better results if we live more like Herod than we live like John the Baptist. It can feel like if I just do what everyone wants me to do, if I just try to be like everyone else I admire, if I just make my decisions based on that, it can feel like I'll have more friends and more acceptance and more fun and, and, and more respect and all those things. And, and, and in a very short-term examples, that's true. Because I can get myself out of a difficult conversation with you by telling you what you want to hear. Right? Whether I agree with it or not. But living my life as a disciple of Jesus is kind of the opposite. Instead of aiming my life at all those million different moving targets, if I aim my life at what makes the biggest deal out of Jesus, and hear that correctly, I did not say aiming my life at morality and goodness. There's a difference. Because sometimes we aim our lives at morality or, or goodness because that will get us acceptance in the circles that we happen to be in. If I aim my life at the unmoving target of what makes the biggest deal out of Jesus Christ, some morality and goodness will come with that target. But if I'm just using morality to get acceptance, I'll compromise on that bad boy just as quickly as I will the other way. But if I aim my life at what makes the biggest deal out of Jesus, in the short term, that may bring discomfort. It often will. It certainly did for John. 
and Jesus and the disciples. But in the long run, my conscience will be clearer. My friends will be truer because they will know what to expect from me. They'll respect my decisions even when I disagree with them. I won't be as wishy-washy. It won't be those situations where I tell this person this and that person that and then they talk to one another and say, well, he said this to me. Well, he said that to me. Well, what's with that guy? Ah. Herod didn't win in this story. Herod is not the winner in this story. John the Baptist is the winner in this story. And I want to ask you a question that I don't want you to answer too quickly, but I want you to answer it. Who do you want to be more like? John the Baptist or Herod? Who do you want to be more like? John the Baptist or Herod? Here's why I I say don't answer that too quickly, because John the Baptist, if you're paying attention, he got his head cut off. Herod lived in a palace. He had all the, the finest things in life. When he had a birthday party, the biggest big shots in the region would come. But if you fast forward, I don't know, a couple of decades, I didn't look this up. Maybe, maybe a couple decades after today's story, here's what I can tell you about Herod. He became just as dead as John the Baptist. Only way more so. Because he's been suffering through the first freckle of his eternal death ever since for 2,000 years. Whereas Jesus said, there's no one greater in the kingdom than my cousin John the Baptist. And and Christian, do not believe for one second Some line of thought that says, well, I'm not on the world stage. I'm not a big deal like John the Baptist or Herod. It really doesn't matter for me. No. You are not so insignificant. You are not so invisible. You are not so meaningless that this doesn't matter for you. You matter. The way you make decisions matters. And a life of steady, faithful integrity is a powerful testimony for Jesus Christ. A life of integrity that leads to temporary discomfort for the right reason is an advertisement that you treasure the treasure. And it may just go down like this. You refuse to make this decision or you do make that decision and the people around you disagree with that and it leads and then somebody says, why would you do that? And you can say, listen, I love you and I don't want to hurt you and I don't want to disappoint you, but here's why I can't do X or here's why I must do Y. Because I'm convinced. This is what my Lord would have me do 
and I live for the one who died for me. Church, live your life as one aimed at the unmoving target of the glory of Jesus Christ. Not aimed at comfort, not aimed at popularity, not aimed at public opinion. It's often an uncomfortable aim, but it will be eternally worth it. Amen? Pray with me. Father God, I thank you so much for the example of John the Baptist. Someone who is willing to be imprisoned and martyred simply to make a big deal out of you. He struggled with his own doubts and his own worries and his own anxiety. We saw that earlier. But those things didn't control his decision making. You did. We want to be people like that, Lord. Not so that we might be accepted more, but that you might be accepted more. God, make us a people who make decisions in a way that show that we treasure the real treasure and not the million moving targets that are around us. And do this that others might accept you and know you and love you and grow into your disciples also. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.